Hello. Here are some spicy questions for you. What if meat actually made us healthy? What if meat and animals play a massive role in keeping our environment healthy? And what if healing our fear of death, including the death of animals and our own eventual death, is intimately connected to the healing of our guts and nervous systems and also our connection to nature? <laughs> Welcome to This Plus That. It's a show about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters. My name is Brandy, of course. I'm your host, and I spent nearly 10 years as a vegetarian. So I know exactly how upsetting even hearing these questions can feel. And I know what it takes to wrestle with these questions. I'm hoping that if they are questions that incite something in you, like a lot of emotion, that you will bear with me in a little bit of trust in knowing that this conversation is vital, I think, to the health of ourselves, the health of our communities, and the health of our planet. And that's because in today's conversation, I talk with Kate Cavanaugh about the intersections of meat plus health. Kate is trying to figure out what it means to lay the groundwork for herself, for human health and ecosystem health alike, for farmers, for the next generation, and beyond. After many years as a vegetarian, Kate's health began to decline precipitously. She turned to meat for answers and found an entire world of curiosity before her. She noticed that through holistic management, farmers were working to restore ecosystems and grasslands with the help of ruminants. This seemed intimately connected to her own health journey, like mine, and, curious to help restore the western grasslands she called home through regeneratively raised meat, she opened a whole animal butcher shop, Western Daughters, with her now husband in 2013. As customers poured in, seeking nutrient-dense foods to heal their bodies, Kate began to deepen her own journey toward health outside of the allopathic medical model and went back to school for nutrition therapy. Blending her knowledge of regenerative agriculture, nutrition, anthropology, health, and biology, Kate is now in the midst of yet another life change spurred on by meat. She moved to a farm where she grows almost all of her own food, lives with the rhythms of nature, and explores the question of what it means to lay the groundwork through her podcast, the Groundwork Podcast. When she's not exploring the intersections of human and ecosystem health, you can find her playing with goats in the sunshine. And in case you didn't hear, this is actually my second conversation with Kate. The last one, uh, episode 24 of the podcast, I highly recommend listening to as well. Um, that one we talk about work plus rest. It's a little bit more personal. It's our first conversation as new friends. So you're really getting to be a bit of a fly on the wall between us as we really get to know each other for the first time and talk about things that we're both really passionate about. And this one is more of a traditional episode where I'm interviewing Kate a lot more and asking about her experience of what it was like to go from being a vegetarian for most of her life to starting to eat meat again, to eventually opening her own butcher shop, to now running her own farm with lots of animals where she deals with the death of these animals and cultivating lives alongside them every day. And I think she has a ton of incredible, important things for us all to sit with. And they're all things that are deeply meaningful to me because um, as you will hear, and as I've mentioned already in this uh, conversation and in this introduction, 
this is a deeply personal story to me in terms of the connections between what I eat and the decline of my health and coming back to connection with death and nature. And in that journey, I think inching my way closer and closer to health and greater alignment with nature and all things, including myself. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I apologize. I really wish that I had a video introduction to this. If you're someone who watches on YouTube, I'm just doing an audio introduction to this one because uh, truth be told, my camera is out of battery. <laughs> I totally messed that up and just didn't have the energy to do it this morning. Uh, I actually, interestingly enough, uh, I've been listening to Kate's podcast and have been really inspired by the work of um, someone named Carrie, who is one of her most recent guests, who talks a lot about our connection to sunlight and the damage that EMFs and Wi-Fi and, and EMFs are electromagnetic frequencies, if you've never heard of those. And yeah, I've just been doing a lot of my own work of reconnecting to the sun and not being scared of sunlight like I've been for so long. And yeah, getting into nature more and getting and turning, getting away from and turning off Wi-Fi and internet more often. And yeah, this morning I went out on a really long walk. Uh, I spent longer than normal outside because I just felt so incredible. And quite honestly, I've been sitting on these podcasts waiting to do the introductions and outros to actually get them to my team to produce. And mostly I've been getting in my own way because I wanted to make them fancy and nice and all of these things. So Instead, I decided I was just going to give you uh, as quick of an intro as possible and not have to make it fancy and know that the most important thing is that you hear this conversation because it's where the real juice is. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Please, please, please. Uh, as I said in the last episode, I'm such a believer in long-form content. Know that though this, this conversation is especially long, that it is quite nutrient dense. And yes, Kate has a lot of things that are going to nourish your soul, nourish your body and all sorts of other things. So please enjoy the second conversation with Kate Cavanaugh, the brilliant farmer, butcher, nutritionist and lover of quantum physics like me and so many other things. She has made my book list ex just like exceptionally long since I've been talking to her. And I'm going to stop rambling because, again, you need to just hear this conversation with her. So enjoy it on the interconnections of meat plus health. So we've already been talking for the last few days, more than I've talked with most people, probably trading... I'm not sure how many voice memos back and forth on our phones. Many. <laughs> so this will just be mostly a continuation uh, of that, I'm sure. But I did want to start with a quote from Underland mm -hmm. <laughs> from uh, Robert McFarlane, which is super short and just says, we're part mineral beings too. Our teeth are reefs, our bones are stones, and there is a geology of the body as well as of the land. Um. Which to me is just like one more way of saying like, not only are we part of nature as humans, but also walking paradoxes. Yes. Um, and, and an so, ecosystem unto ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and so sort of with that in mind slash like, you know, add on to that or comment on that if you'd like. But I, most questions I always start with are something to the effect of, what in your past, like what paradoxes do you feel like in your past that you have held in yourself or that you feel like you're currently holding? 
I think I'm always holding the paradox of life and death and how much that they can coexist together and how much one is required for the other. And I think that this has been my experience as a vegetarian, as a child, as a butcher in my in my 20s, and now as a farmer, is this exp- exploration of this cyclical relationship between life and death and mm-hmm. how they can coexist and feed one another in such a beautiful way. I feel like most of my life has been an exploration of paradox and of how two seemingly incongruent things fit together. And I think sometimes that has just been, and you and I have talked about this a lot, me and the world, right? But Mm -hmm. I don't feel, I feel like an alien on this planet at times, um, how I fit into things. But I think that exploration of life and death, um, as well as the conversation of things that have become paradoxes that I'm not sure should ever have been paradoxes. Hmm. Like this idea of this idea of meat, not meat and health, right? (laughs) We view these as being difficult to put together when in fact, I think that they've gone together the entire time. Yeah. And I mean, I think that quote to me also is, I mean, it speaks to life and death. And I mean, if, if our teeth are coral reefs and our bones are stones, like we are like, even as humans sort of constantly walking death, but we're also alive, (laughs) meaning like, you know, that has all come from things that have theoretically died, but now make up parts of who we are. And, you know, I think we both geeked out a bit about Andreas Weber and the conversation that I had with him about love and death. And, you know, I think what I love about his work is that sort of tension between um, like, you know, death can't exist without life and life can't exist without death. But like also that we are always in and out of things like there is a constancy of which like, you know, we've seen ourselves as separate often from nature, but are literally made up and constantly in exchange. Like our cells are in exchange with what we eat. They're in exchange with the people that we're in relationship with. They're in exchange with literally everything around us. And even um, also one of my former guests, uh, Asia Dorsey, who talked to me about microbes and spirituality, talks about like the fact that we are always becoming. We're becoming the sheets that we're sleeping on. We're becoming the towels that we use, you know? So this idea that we're like always in and out of things at all times. There's this beautiful idea of nutrient cycling when you get into Mm. farming and how you are creating this recursive loop of nutrients. And it starts in the soil, this elegant conversation that's happening between the root of a plant and the microbes and the fungi in the soil that is actually passing minerals from the community within the soil up into the plant and they they are making this this elegant exchange and then that exchange is being held by the ruminants above that are eating the plants that are those minerals are accumulating in their fat in their meat in all of these tissues and they are by the action of eating deepening and strengthening the root systems of that plant, hopefully, you know, within a good context of grazing. Mm -hmm. And then they are in turn dropping manure and urine that is 
adding nutrients back into the soil, adding microbes and life back into the soil, as well as helping to break down the the grasses themselves so that they can get recycled into the soil. And then we mm -hmm. are eating the ruminants and all of those nutrients and not just minerals and vitamins, but also phytochemicals that were inside that plant matter are coming into our bodies. And then we are having this elegant conversation with our environment and those around us that is communicating all of this and tending to the land. And it just creates this beautiful recursive cycle. Yeah, I was thinking about in prep for this conversation last night, this um, this line that Andreas had in our conversation that I've been sort of um, bereft about not actually digging in deeper with him on because I, 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 I knew what he meant, but I wish I would get him to like expand on it because it's just so beautiful. But he said this line, which was, uh, my practice or my goal in life right now is just to become more edible. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I thought that was so beautiful. This idea that again, like we are in sort of constant relationship with all things and things are in and out of us at all times. And we are in and out of other things at all times. And it's not just that we eat other things. It's that like, how are we and our own bodies also dense with nutrients? Like, yes. are we deficient in nutrients? How are we being edible? And you know, I was talking with a friend the other night, too, about um, the idea of pregnancy and birthing children and, and all of this. And, you know, she was like, when I talk about food, it's not just me. This isn't about just like healing my own chronic illness and my own health. It's about like my children and my children's children and all of that. And I was like, even if I'm not sure that I want to have children, but I was like, even if I don't for me, this is like, I... I provide nutrients when I die to wherever I'm buried, you know, like how am I then getting recycled into the rest of it? And so I love that idea of like, how am I becoming more and more edible? Um, I think there's this aspect too of the symbiosis that we have with all of the bacteria and fungi and viruses that are just existing in our body that outnumber our cells logarithmically. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea of are, are we us because our DNA is way outnumbered by all of these other things that are populating us. Mm -hmm. And so are we just a vehicle for that life? You could look at it through that yeah. lens where we are just a vehicle for microbial life to further Viruses its mission all kinds of things. here on Earth, as opposed to really being ourselves. But I also think in that same thing that you said, that we are here to heal intergenerational epigenetic shifts. Mm-hmm for our children, whether, and, and I'm at the same place that you are, that I'm a little bit unsure if that's what I want, but I really believe that when we begin to heal one person in the collective, one body within the collective, one little parcel of land within the collective, that that is part of healing the whole. Yeah. And, and so that is sacred work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, these are not right. These I mean, these ideas are very indigenous, like they have been around for a really, really long time. Right. But yeah, I think we're. And when I say we, at least white people are like coming back around to this idea of like our understanding. And even in your most recent episode with um, about interconnectedness, that it's like, um, yeah, that we've maybe just forgot, you know, I think. Yeah. Um, at some point along the line. 
We've had this rift that has happened between us and this idea that we are a part of nature or part of the environment. And I see this all the time, that we speak about the environment in a way that it is extrinsic from us. It exists outside of us. But really, we are a part of the symphony that is the environment. And yeah. I think that there are a lot of fingers. And, and in that episode, you know, we point some fingers around where that break might right. have begun to happen, where we didn't view ourselves as part and parcel of nature. Yeah. Um, but because you're like, you have such specific knowledge, I think, as both like a nutritionist and a butcher and, you know, like you've mentioned all these transitions that you've made in your life um, and a meat eater and a, now a farmer, what is actually happening in our soil and how is it connected to our bodies? Which I'm sure is a very large question. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, Dear okay. Kate, what's going yeah. on in our soil? I think this is complicated. And I think that one of the ways that I like to look at this is through the lens of human health, because I really think that human health and environmental health are mirrors and analogs for one another that we see reflected in the decline of human health and fertility that same decline in soil health and fertility. Mm -hmm. And we see a decline in our nutrient status as humans at the same time that we see a decline in the nutrient status in soils. And I don't think that any of this is coincidence, but really a reflection of how deeply interconnected we are with that massive organism that is soil. And so mm -hmm. We have to go back to this idea that there are over 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil. And that is that is such a radically massive number that I think it's honestly incomprehensible until mm -hmm. we imagine just how many microbes we have sitting in our gut, in our soil, mm -hmm. and, and that it's very similar. What is going on in our soil? Oh. <laughs> well, let me also say like that felt like a good place to sort of mention. I, I can't remember if it was in your intro episode of your podcast or in your conversation with Alicia Brown in the intro. I think it's probably in the intro of that episode where you say like you refer to soil as like it's a fucking universe. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Like, and yeah. I, I love to like just how you talk about um, your sort of astonishment as someone who, like me, is also interested in physics, that it's wild to think that we know more about space than we do about soil. Like I think about this often. Yeah. I think I, I think about all the stars in the sky and then I think about all the microbes in the soil and it, it far outweighs what we know about the universe, yeah. just statistically, not even what we can see. And I think it's really interesting that we look to the stars for this idea of salvation, for this idea of forward thinking when what's under our feet represents a larger universe in many ways and one that's very close to home. And yet we haven't paid much attention to this. And I think that there are these little moments in time where you see us connect back to the soil. And I think about the beautiful story that during the Dust Bowl in the 1920s, when they were trying to legislate a little bit about how we utilized agriculture, how we grew crops, because how we were growing crops during that time was causing massive topsoil erosion to the point that it was kicking up these massive dust storms. We were losing yeah. all of our fertility, all of our ability to draw water down into the soil. 
And this farmer had gone to Washington and was speaking. And as he was speaking about his experience, I think it was in Oklahoma in the West, this massive dust bowl rolled through Washington. And so there was this moment that we had where maybe we could have connected with what are we doing here that is causing this incredibly fertile sea of soil, which is really what the American West, the prairie, was. Mm-hmm. When we headed west in a, in a colonial way, um, what we saw was just massive fertility, but something that we didn't understand. The grasslands are a very different organism than the rainforest, and yet they have the power to capture more carbon than mm-hmm. trees and to sink it into soil and to turn it into these minerals and nutrients that are then bioaccumulating up the food chain, like we talked mm-hmm. about in the beginning. And then we see, you know, and I always I always go back to this from a historical perspective because I think that some of the different things that happen are important along the way. In the 1970s, we see the Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, say we have to get big or get out. And that was really the death knell in the American, the small American family farmer. And it mm-hmm. really transitioned our food system to one of much more decentralized small farms across the country into a handful of corporations owning the majority of that food chain. Mm-hmm. And I think that really leads us to where we are today. And around that same time, you also see the rise of processed food. You see the vertical integration of growing these monocrops throughout the United States and then throughout the world. A lot of that is grown in South America now. Mm-hmm. And we see the concentration of that into processed foods mm-hmm. and into the destruction, I think, of our health. And I think that's part and parcel. And so here we have these parallel tracks of soil health and human health. And we know that we lose, I think it's over a ton of topsoil per person in America. It's, you know, per year that just washes away. And that amount of fertility washing away is wild. And in that same vein, you see a decline in sperm counts over since 1960, over 50%. And you see one in three women having troubles conceiving. And so our fertility is literally blowing away into the wind. And it's hard for me not to see that those two things must be connected. Yeah, I... um... Uh, I think, again, in your conversation with Alicia Brown, there's a point where she's talking about like, um, like you can taste life in your food. Like one of the things that's really brilliant about ecology and like the way that the world works, that nature works, is that um, things that are more beautiful, we're attracted to them. Things that taste better, we want, we, we salivate more over them, right? And it's interesting to me, like I was listening back to it this morning and just thinking like, it's not, it doesn't even feel like you're saying like this frustration I have and like talking about paradox where you're like, it's not even a paradox anymore. It's like so obvious to me that like the life in our f- soil is the life in our food, is the life in our bodies, is the life that we're able to create when we procreate. <laughs> like, and the more that the, so, like one part in that chain is devalued of life or is lacking aliveness, 
the more the rest of that chain lacks aliveness. Yes. And of course, that chain is so much bigger. It's also the work that we do in the world. It's like so many other things. And so um, I love too, like there's a part where she's talking about how like they've done research on how even a lot of oranges don't even have vitamin C in them anymore. And it's like, it just reminded me of this line I use all the time um, from Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says something like, like, it's like our, um, our spirits are hungry while our bodies are full, hmm. meaning that like we have somehow eaten and eaten and eaten and we're busy and we're busy and we're busy, right? Like we, we do all this work, we eat all this food, we're consuming basically empty calories and not just in the food that we eat, but in the work that we're doing in the soil yes. that we're cultivating, like it's in the media we're consuming. Yeah. in the media we're consuming. So it's just a constant... Like, it doesn't even feel like a mirror. Like, it's just, it is the same. Like, the, the, all of the busy, busyness that we're doing and the food that we're eating and the lack of fertility, like, all of these things are the same thing. They're not even related. <laughs> like, it just feels like the same thing. And, um, I love also that Alicia said something about, like, once you taste an incredible carrot or, like bell pepper or something or tomato. Like I feel like a lot of people have had have had more experience of of like eating a strawberry for the first time that was actually like a nutrient dense strawberry or a tomato or something. And just being like, oh my God. And it's not just that it's delicious. It's that like nature built in a mechanism for us to understand what was actually filled with more life. And it's that it tastes better. The pork that we eat tastes better when it's been given a better life. Like the soil then therefore has to be better in order to grow that more alive food. Right. Um, I'm sure. You, yeah. Go I think, ahead. I think you said a couple of really important things in there. And the first of which it's not a mirror. And I love that. I hadn't thought it's, it's not a mirror. It's just this cascade of interconnections and we can draw many connections right again, between work, between health, right. between food, between all of these different things and just see how deeply interconnected that system is. But when we're talking about nutrient density, and, and, and I want to apply that in all of the different ways, both in a more literal fashion for soil and for the vegetables and the fruits that we're eating, but also nutrient density and what we're consuming yeah. on our phones and yeah. on our bookshelves and in our TVs. Before but, I let you launch into that, can you make sure that you yeah. just actually explain briefly what nutrient density actually is for anyone who just has hmm. zero clue about what that even means? Hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that. I don't know if I have a good description off the top of my head, so I'm just going to yeah, do just my riff, best. Because I don't, I don't need the scientific one. I think just like a basic understanding for folks who just don't actually have never even realized that there are more or less nutrients in one carrot to another. Yeah. When we're talking about nutrient density, we're talking about all of these little chemical messengers that are inside of our foods. Uh, and you can call this, when you study it in, from a scientific term, it's called metabolomics. And so you're looking at the metabolomics of a carrot or of a piece of meat. And you're looking at the concert, not just of macronutrients. And so that's going to be your protein and your fat and your carbohydrates. And even not just your minerals, minerals are going to be things like copper, zinc, manganese, mm -hmm. magnesium, go on about that, or your vitamins, which are going to look like A, D, E, and K. Mm -hmm. 
But we're also talking about all the phytochemicals and all of the things we don't even understand that a food contains. And this is something that we're really on the verge of peeking into. And I think one of the most important things to remember as we have this conversation is there's a lot that we don't know about food. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to reduce <laughs> yeah. it into a macronutrient profile of, yeah. okay, this this carrot has 30 calories and it has some beta carotene and it has a little bit of vitamin C and it has some carbohydrates in the form of these complex sugars. There's also a lot going on that we don't even understand. And I was, and I'll get into this later, but there are two really interesting gentlemen, uh, Fred Provenza and Stefan Van Vliet, that are really beginning to look at just this concert of things that are happening inside of our food. And they've measured between 60 and 70,000 metabolites just in beef alone. And so these are just molecules of what? We don't even know. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's exactly like dark matter in food. And so as we go into nutrient density, which I think in a classical term is going to be a representation of the minerals, the vitamins, the macronutrients that are contained within that. I want to leave space for the magic that we don't understand that is in food. But and also, I think the important point of, you know, like, again, going back to taste, it's like, we don't have to actually understand all of the scientific things. We actually have a built in mechanism that tells us basically what has more or less life in it because it tastes really incredible. Not only that, but we have a built-in mechanism for understanding our unique nutritional deficiencies in terms Mm. of minerals or vitamins and how to seek them out in food. And we have deeply lost connection with this intuitive sense of being able to to feed ourselves, and I mean truly feed Mm -hmm. ourselves what our bodies are looking for. Mm -hmm. And there's a great book called Nourishment by Fred Provenza, where he looks at the way that animals are able to determine their unique mineral and vitamin deficiencies and to seek them out in the plant matter that they are consuming. And you see this to the point that if you take a sheep and you deprive it of phosphorus, and this was a, a really interesting point in one of his studies, they deprived these sheep of phosphorus and their their phosphorus levels weren't dropping. They were, well, but there's no phosphorus in the environment. There's no phosphorus for them to get into. These sheep were reaching over the fence into a different research paddock to eat the manure of the sheep that were getting phosphorus so that they could wow. fulfill that deficiency in their own bodies. If you give single minerals out to ruminants in in a pasture, they will select what their particular biology needs. It reminds me. Go ahead. Yeah, we have this. We have this as humans. This this has not been lost completely. I think it has been it has been veiled and covered and societally hidden from us Mm -hmm. in the way that we're raised and the foods that we have access to. But it's there. Yeah. I was just going to say, it reminds me of um, one of my conversations on the podcast was with um, a guy named Lincoln Carr, who's a brilliant uh, quantum physicist and also a poet. If you've not listened to, I'm sure you would also love. Um, We'll listen to that one. But he 
He has a close friend who at one point in life studied like the many or at least like cataloged as many as he could sort of think of or like research types of intelligences that there are so many different types of intelligence in the world. And that is just such a like very specific, wild, cool intelligence. It's like it reminds me of listening to I think it was a radio lab episode I listened to once that was talking about how trees feel or like kind of have a brain in their roots like if if they know that water is nearby will like go into a bucket over it and into it to like get water and there's there is a kind of intelligence there that knows that like i don't know if it's like the filaments on the roots or something that feel the vibrations that like who knows we have no idea what's going on they but- chemical they're chemical messengers between trees and i don't i don't know the the full science behind this but there are chemical messengers within trees that will alert neighboring mm-hmm. trees to a pathogen that is dangerous to them and will start changing the way that their interconnected root systems work yeah. Uh, Richard Richard Powers talks about this in The Overstory, which is mm-hmm. fiction with some nonfiction mixed in. Yeah. Um, I love, too, though, like there's a part in your conversation with Alicia where um, in terms of like, like when you're eating really incredible food that is nutrient dense, that like once you taste it, it's hard to go back. And I was watching your Instagram stories the other day, too, that was just sort of like you remarking on like once you start to like actually connect with life in this way like to be closer to your food to be more in tune with nature um, all of these ways that actually feel deeply meaningful to you that it's like all you crave is more and more and more of it it's almost like the sheep going after the manure for the phosphorus it's like I now understand I have a deficiency and all I want is deeper and deeper and deeper and I quote this from Audre Lorde all the time, but I think it's beautiful in case you've never heard it, which um, is from Uses of the Erotic that just says, once you, um, or no, the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. (laughs) It's an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing (laughs) its power in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. And I I think that's been my experience and I feel like partly speaks to why you and I both feel like this conversation is deeply rooted in whatever purpose it is that we're here to fulfill because um, whether it's metaphor for us or directly true, I mean, as a farmer, this is like directly true, but like in my own world of like food and chronic illness, like it has become such a metaphor of um, direct connection to life that like once I actually started connecting to myself and to the environment and to nature in this way, it was like, um, I mean, before we were technically recording, we were also talking about like an inability to go back to like, we're not very employable people. (laughs) (laughs) And I think part of that for me is that like, once you actually also start to do work that you care about, like it has become physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually impossible for me to envision what it means to go back to less nutrient dense work, you know? Um, But yeah, there's something in there, I think, that it's like your body knows that like once you've tasted it, there's just no returning. Or at least that like maybe you're not able to do it fully right away, right? Like this has been a process for both of us, but that... Mm -hmm. um, 
you crave more and more of it the same way that you crave more delicious food and food that's like nourishing once you actually taste what nourishing food is like. I have this I have this deep curiosity about the void that exists within us. And I've thought a lot about it. And I think we see it as a symptom of most of the things that are happening within our culture, mm -hmm. that something something is really missing. And for a long time, I really believed that that thing, that sort of intangible that was missing was our connection to our food. That for many millennia as humans, it has been our full-time job, as it were, to hunt, to gather, to prepare, to preserve, to cook around a campfire, to eat food. That that was really what categorized the biggest part of our time throughout the day. I love that life. I want more and more of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I want. That's all I want in life. Yeah. And so I felt initially that we were attempting to fill this void that our connection to our food, because even as we even as we go into the dawn of agriculture 10,000 years ago, we're still in deep connection with our food. That connection has shifted a little bit. It's become a little bit more hierarchical in a way that I think is potentially problematic. But we are still in connection. And it's really within the last 100, 150 years that we have lost that connection with food. And I really felt that we were seeking it. And I think it was a reflection of me. I was seeking it. I was seeking that connection to food through being a vegetarian, then through being a butcher, and then through being a farmer. But the the further I dive down that rabbit hole of, is this it? Is this what is going to fill my void or the void? I think it's just connection, period. It's all the different ways that we are connecting to ourselves, that we are connecting to each other, that we are connecting mm -hmm. to our environment, that we are connecting to our food, that this is, this is the piece that might be missing in terms of nutrient density is just to have these these nutrient and laden things in all arenas of our life until we reach that level of satiety that you're then just you're just hungry for more i don't know mm -hmm. if you can reach satiety and i think that you also you have a big piece of this puzzle in everything is tending towards more aliveness is something mm. that i hear you say mm -hmm. in your podcast and and so i think that we too are tending towards more aliveness. And when we find mm -hmm. that aliveness in connection with all the other living things within our environment, mm -hmm. we just want more. Yeah. Um, and there's something I think that is related to like my take on aliveness, which is, you know, you're sort of commentating in a lot of your work about how healing, and we talked about this some in our first conversation together, but like how healing is innate, like that our bodies want to heal, right? Um, and also for anyone who's listening, who's like, hold on a second, I'm going to need to understand how Kate went from becoming, like from being a vegetarian to becoming a butcher to becoming a farmer. Don't worry, <laughs> I'm gonna force her to say that too. Um, but I, I think it's related to this next question, which is like, how did you begin to actually heal that relationship for yourself? Not just um, like, like maybe partly sort of your first foray into what, like digging into more um, like being satiated or, um, you know, like that sense of connection was for you, um, mm -hmm. but also just like between like you and your relationship to death, 
I suppose. Like, how did you begin to heal those things? What did that look like for you? I think that actually kind of takes us through that story of yeah, what that's, it means I think to that's go through vegetarian yeah. to butcher. Yeah. So there was a lot of death in my childhood. It was a very present force for me. And it was something that I really wanted to avoid. It felt so big and so dark and so heavy. And I felt it in my immediate environment on a near daily basis. And it was really hard to hold. And I remember as a little kid, I would watch that scene in Bambi where they shoot the mother. And I would watch it on repeat. Oh like God, five Kate. years old, <laughs> I would watch it on repeat until my it's mom dark. would come down and take the tape away. And wow. so there was this instant, both repulsion and curiosity about mm-hmm. death. And I think that many of us have that dichotomy of repulsion and curiosity. I think it's yeah. really natural. And from there, there's a there's a I I watched the movie Babe and being the sensitive child that I was, decided that I didn't want to participate in animal agriculture and made this big declaration that I was going to be a vegetarian, which my parents allowed me to entertain. I was very willful. And that evolved over time. And so initially I was just a child and I would save my allowance to to save turkeys for Thanksgiving and then send me a little picture of the turkeys. And I had this whole wall of all the turkeys that I had saved using my allowance for Thanksgiving. (laughs) And then I became a teenager in the punk rock scene and veganism and PETA were very popular. And it also began to take on this environmental lens that I was really concerned about what animal agriculture was doing to the environment. Mm -hmm. And then I reached the age of 20 And my health was declining precipitously. I had no energy. I had a lot of digestive issues. I had massive brain fog, anxiety, depression. My period was irregular. And I didn't know what to do. And at the time, I had begun dating my now husband, who was a meat eater. And I felt called to try eating meat and to figure out what that might mean. But because I I never do anything halfway, I wanted to go all the way deep into this industry that I could better understand it. I wanted to connect with it. If I'm going to eat meat, then I am going to be in as close of connection with these animals that I can muster living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. It's so funny. Wasn't your first uh, bite of meat again a burger? That your husband yes. was eating? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was an antelope burger. And oh, wow. We ended up trading. I ended up eating the burger. He ate my salad. <laughs> and then we drove back. It was, it was, we were three hours away from home and we drove back that night. And the next morning, he woke, we woke up and he was like, What do you want to do today? It was a Sunday. I was like, I want to go back and I want to eat another burger. <laughs> and yeah. so he he drove me another three hours to go eat another burger yeah which is uh super funny because i'm just realizing actually even knowing that story and if you want like the full story of that is actually in the introduction episode of your podcast so people can hear even more detail but i'm just realizing personally that like i mean of course my story follows a somewhat similar traje- trajectory i wasn't a vegetarian since the time i was little but i became a vegetarian sometime i think in my early 20s early to mid 20s uh 
And I was sort of coming at it from a, I was doing a lot of anti-human trafficking work. Um, work. I was really involved in anti-human rights or human rights stuff, uh, not anti-human rights. I was involved in human <laughs> rights work um, a lot in grad school and sort of the basis of my uh, master's degree. And uh, I was doing this internship at an uh, anti-human rights organization. And one of my uh, former, or one of my like sort of colleagues, one of the other interns, was uh, starting a CSA with her husband. And so I got really into that and um, started watching a bunch of like food documentaries, like Forks Over Knives and, you know, everything that was sort of coming out at that time that was like, meat bad, meat bad. Um, and seemed pretty convincing. So started started to um, turn vegetarian and eventually like ate mostly vegan at home. But similarly, within a few years, uh, my health started to tank. Like your list of symptoms is basically uh, exact to mine. And the first, so we both know someone named Seth O'Donovan. And the first time I ate meat again was, uh, I was helping her with, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, even with Andreas Weber, but I was helping her with a project in the Carbondale Valley in Colorado. And there was a local restaurant there that was just a burger place that had like local burgers. And I was just like, I was, I, you know, I was in relationship, you know, I was uh, friends with Seth. And so like, we were talking a lot about um, vegetarianism and meat eating and all this. And I was starting to consider like what it would be to eat meat again. And I ate a burger for the first time and had sort of a similar response that was like, holy cow. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have been uh, missing it for so long. Yeah, totally transcendent. <laughs> and especially like it's delicious. It's it's probably more nutrient dense because it came from local cows that were, pro you know, probably treated well. Um, but like because of that, like Seth the farm that Seth was working on was the oldest uh, family farm in the Carbondale Valley, and it was right next to Sustainable Settings, which is sort of nationally famous for being, I think, the first, if not, or at least one of the first biodynamic farms in the country. And uh, I was up there at one point, one weekend or something, and they were hosting a um, a ceremonial killing and uh, feeding of the valley. Like all of the farmers were wel welcome to come eat at the farm, but you got to go in the morning before they started cooking to like actually watch the animals being slaughtered. And I was like, sort of in a similarly intense place where I was like, listen, if I'm going to do this, I have to understand directly what it is to be in relationship with death and to see the animals that I'm about to eat who are about to feed and nourish my body be killed. And I watched a lamb getting slaughtered, um, which is still like, it's, as affecting today to me talking about it, like, as it was watching it then. And that's sort of the point, you know, that like, I actually now have like a physical embodied experience of what it is to respect the fact that like, my life is dependent on other death. Um, yes. But yeah, I hadn't really thought about like that sort of similarly was like, I ate a burger and I was fully in. And then I mean, I wasn't I didn't immediately but like, I sort of like inch back in but like, a burger was my first sort of foray back into eating meat again. And then was like, if we're going to do this, like, I got to know the full, I got to know the full weight of what it means to actually be eating something else again in order for my life to be sustained. Which is weird because plants are alive too. But anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. In a different way. How we, how we view life and what we categorize as life and, right. and the hierarchy of importance within that fascinates me. Right. Is something we can get into or not, but. Yeah. That moment when you want to be all in, you you want to connect and understand the entire you want to peel back the veil on the food system 
at least in one more alternative food system. And I think that what you and I are talking about is very different than conventional agriculture. Right. And I did the exact same thing. I, I dove into visiting farms and ranches and talking to farmers and ranchers and learning more about the ecology that went into ranching and holistic grazing and what was not at that time deemed regenerative agriculture. But I also went deep into cooking and learning how to interact with these different meats that I had not grown up with. And I dove right into organ meats. I just wanted, I just wanted <laughs> to get to the, the literal heart of it. Heart was one of the first things that I oh bought goodness. at the farmer's market to cook at home uh, because I am just an all-in kind of girl. And within three years of eating that burger, I would open up a butcher shop. And, and that is, I just dove in fully into this world because there was something there for me. There was a, a soul contract that was calling me to this relationship with mm -hmm. meat, with death, and with exploring that conversation also with meat and the environment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I learned how to butcher. I opened up a butcher shop, Western Daughters in Denver, Colorado, and just kept going deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and I just find these threads and want to pull on them to see where they, you know, ended, not knowing that they had no ending, right? That when mm -hmm. you, you, you just keep pulling. And I went to school to become a nutrition therapist and I dove into doing all of this farm work with our ranchers and farmers and just wanted that. I wanted to farm myself. So did my husband. And so we, we really tried to teach ourselves through volunteering how to, how to do enough that we could figure it out on our own and then dove headfirst into farming. And I think within three months of moving to the farm, we had pigs, goats, chickens, ducks, geese, cows, <laughs> I just like full kit and caboodle. So yeah, uh, just a in. process of diving all in, but it was one that led to the other. And it was getting this really unique opportunity to see how meat was changing my body and then to suddenly visit all these farms and ranches and to see how ruminants especially were changing the landscape through their impact and their relationship mm -hmm. with the environment in a really positive way that was healing land mm -hmm. and to see that intersection between meat healing both land and bodies I was hooked yeah I and I I want to get to that but I also um I mean I just feel like I have to all acknowledge though at some point I mean the first question I gave you which was like what paradox have you held in the past or like what do you feel like you're currently holding and these are like what I would sort of term almost like violent transitions, right? These are like major identity shifts. Like, I don't mean violent to the environment or to you necessarily, but like well, I didn't they are major identity shifts, you know? And I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to hold that because I'm going to assume, number one, shitloads of people who are hearing this and also many people that you've known in your past and spoken out about all of this before uh, don't get it and are quite upset by it. And um, I've been there before, of course, because I've also transitioned from, I mean, I spoke about this some in a previous episode also that like, I have also held a lot of those really violent transitions in my life. And the, um, 
I've lost a lot of friends over it. I've lost a lot of relationships. I've made a lot of people angry. Um, and it's hard to hold that. And I just sort of wanted to ask, like, I don't know about some of your experience of the reality of like, um, of what that's been for you. And then I think also just like, yeah, for anyone who, you know, like part of setting up this interview, I was like, listen, Kate, like you talk about, because this has been like sort of your, your, um, message in the world that like your podcast has a lot of folks who are related to food and soil and farming and nutrient density and all, you know, all of these things. Um, but folks who are listening to mine are not like used to, I'm sure like many of them not used to me at least talking to someone about like veganism slash vegetarianism to meat eating, you know, like that, that's a leap here. And so I was just sort of like, you know, we're not going to cut any of this out, but like, be prepared. Like, I think this is going to be odd for some people to be like, (laughs) what's going on here. And I think, you know, even I have close friends, some of the people who are like the biggest fans of this show, who I love and adore, who comment on it all the time and listen frequently are like, um, you know, I was on a walk with one of them a few months ago before moving from Denver to Boulder. And he was like, you know, I think it were my husband and I are starting to like try to eat less meat. And, you know, I'm like listening to him already list all of the like, you know, physical symptoms that he experiences and now starting to try to eat meat less. And I, internally I was like, oh my God, no. Don't um, do it. <laughs> so all of that's to say that like, I have a feeling that like, if you can hang with us, first of all, like I have a feeling that, um, there are people listening who are like, hold the farm. Like, I don't quite understand uh, how is meat not terrible? Why on earth would you start doing that again if your health was already tanking? Isn't meat bad for the environment? Isn't it bad for our bodies? Isn't it bad, bad, bad? Like, bad. Mm-hmm. Isn't meat just terrible? Like, I don't get it. Tell me more. So I think both, yeah, uh, just condense that again, just like, some of your experience of what it's been like to be a person who's had to hold a lot of those tensions and how that's affected you. And um, I'm guessing also your husband. And then, um, yeah, just why meet? Yeah, I think those are really good questions. I think in terms of violent transitions, and I have had many, and I I assume I will have many more mm-hmm. in, in a way. I think that I have a really strong value system. And I think that this is really important for anybody who is pivoting and adapting and evolving personally within this lifetime Mm -hmm. that really help guide me. Things that I know are important to me and curiosity is one of them, that I always want to be led by my curiosity and Mm -hmm. that I don't want to feel like there's any place that my curiosity and I can't go, that we are exploring the world together. Uh, freedom is another one. And, and by that, I mean that I, I want freedom from a traditional work life. Mm-hmm. I want freedom in terms of space to explore both my physical aspect in life as well as my personal outlay in life. Mm-hmm. And I value health. And I, I really struggle with this word when it comes back to it because I think it's been adulterated but i really value nutrient density maybe maybe that's what it is aliveness like yeah aliveness what is it that makes us more alive yeah i really value that within that and those have been guiding north stars for me as i've made these rather violent transitions and i think some of them 
I've lost a lot of people along the way. And in retrospect, I mean, when you asked that, I want to be really honest about what came up. And I was like, man, is this a a byproduct of being an only child and a Capricorn and maybe a little bit selfish and and very much tunnel vision that once I decide also, I want to learn child something. and a Libra. So <laughs> same, same. You're an earth sign, right? Earth sign. I'm yeah. an air sign, but nonetheless, uh, only children. Yeah. And so uh, that that played into it. And so I think some is is just my emotional outlay that mm-hmm. I prioritize my curiosity, perhaps times when I shouldn't or. That's I don't know. That's actually not how I feel. I, I'm yeah, glad I that, that, that I've done that throughout my life. You believe in a shouldn't. I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm I don't. I was like, no, system. you know what? Um, but that really has been my guiding North Star and this idea that we can change our minds. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think is really lacking in culture. We can we can change our minds. We can be on one track and hop on to a different track well, and, and we can go off sort of... track at all. It's like going back to that like sort of revelation or, you know, like par- part of this conversation where it was like nothing is actually even a mirror. It's like not even a contradiction. It's like, um, you know, I think the the loss of friendship for me has often been like, well, you can't be this and that thing. Like it's, it is truly the intention mm-hmm. of this podcast is to like hold to a, a container for me to learn to allow contradiction in myself, seeming contradiction in myself even you know, like you've, you told me your podcast is for you primarily, like it's for other people, but it's like really for you. And for me, this like was a deeply personal project that was like, I need for myself to practice outside of my own body, what it is to like, um, hold these seeming contradictions and not be so at war internally in my own self even. And Hmm. at some point, I think like, even in my episode with, um, uh Emily uh on painting and prayer recently we like she I asked her about contradiction and she sort of had this brilliant beautiful response that was just sort of like I just don't even think that contradiction exists in the universe like I think it's a a byproduct of our minds like a human mind like I don't think nature ever is like I don't know I can't see how a tree is also water is also you know like um so yeah, for me, I think it's also been a practice of being like, I t- actually just don't even know that vegetarianism and eating meat are really all that different. Like, and I and I think that's a useful, they are practically in many, many ways, obviously, but like at its core, like I think one of the ways that I've been able to hold that tension with some folks is to like, obviously be like, we can all agree that conventional agriculture uh, does not contain a lot of aliveness. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to say good or bad. I'm going to say it doesn't contain a lot of aliveness. I like that. And that uh, we are all on the same page about like wanting the environment to be tenable for us to live in and beyond tenable, like beyond sustainable. We want it to be thriving, right? We want us as people to be able to be healthy and flourishing and to Andreas's Weber word again, fecund. Like we want... We all are trending toward aliveness. Like we all want that. So it's not like you or you are making bad decisions and we're making the good decisions. It's like, Hmm. you know, where is it that, you know, we are actually one and the same and just like a recognition that like it is all what you are me and I am you and we're all becoming and we're all the same thing. Like any, you know, and when you get into physics, that's when it gets a lot easier also to be like, I don't know, like we're, it seems like we're all just the same thing. And I love also, um, is your last episode, what's his name? Sam? Bobby Gill. Bobby. Totally off. (laughs) (laughs) Totally off. Um, 
like calling it a process, like that our brains are an emergent uh, property of like an ongoing process of what's happening, right? So now yes. I'm just rambling and getting kind of esoteric, but like uh, we're just like actually not all that different, I guess, is the sort of basis of what I'm saying. You're talking about some really important concepts when we dive into why mate. You're talking about the need Thank to hold... Thank you for hold... bringing us back. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the need to hold complexity, to hold nuance, mm -hmm. to get outside of a linear and binary system and to embrace the idea that when we're talking about the processes of the environment, the ecosystem, and our role in it, we are talking about something that is deeply nonlinear and cannot be reduced to a single metric or quantification point. Mm -hmm. And we have to start to begin to look at processes, to look at qualification over quantification, to get out of that mm -hmm. reductionist, mechanistic, Cartesian model of thinking, and to really begin to look at the whole through this lens of holism. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important for entering this conversation around meat and yeah. why meat. Yeah. And you, you said earlier, and I said I'd like to come back to, which is um, how on earth is meat healing? <laughs> so let's That's talk the thing about I that. think is like so surprising for people, right? Because media, our disconnection from nature, big pharma, um, like all kinds of things. Like there have been lifelong campaigns that sort of tell us basically all of these things are bad. Meat, dairy, fat, like all of this stuff. So how how on earth is meat healing? So there are two ways I'd kind of like to look at this. And one is through the historical prevailing narrative that we see in media and how meat begins to get a bad rap because <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. And then there's this aspect of how meat interacts with the environment. Mm -hmm. And the environment includes us, of course. Mm -hmm. And so there are two two different tracks because one is very much a history of a thing that is man-made and one is very much a history of evolution and how ecosystems behave. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to start? I don't know. Take your pick. <laughs> okay. So I think it's important to understand that meat plays a role in our evolution as homo sapiens, that when we begin to cook meat, our brain capacity begins to expand, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden we are able to get very bioavailable, very easy nutrients quickly. Mm -hmm. And we call this, there's a, there's a hypothesis, I think it's called the elegant tissue hypothesis. And when we look at the history of our evolution and we look at great apes, they have so much more intestinal capability volume than we do. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because they are just eating plant species, which require a lot of digestive force. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to this when we talk about ruminants. Yep. But they require so much digestive force and so much energy in their, in their organism. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to eat meat, our intestines begin to shrink because we're getting these bioavailable nutrients very quickly into our being. And that's mm -hmm. giving us an excess of energy. They're also easier to digest than plant matter. 
And that excess energy is is then shifted to our brains, which begin to expand within the context of this evolutionary model. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have over over millennia, you have this growing relationship between plants and the animals that eat them. And this is a really important and beautiful relationship. I think as as consumers in today's day and age, we think that by eating something, we are killing it, that that is the end of it. Hmm. But in this model, when we are eating things, we are strengthening and nourishing them. And so what you see, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on bison because it's a really, it's just an easy space to begin. Hmm. And you see a ruminant. And so what is a ruminant? Because we kind of have to talk about that too. Mm-hmm. So a ruminant is... And Bobby, in my latest podcast, called them environmental engineers, which I love. So a ruminant is is an engineer (laughs) of their environment. They have a very complex four-chambered stomach that works a lot like a fermentation chamber. Mm -hmm. And they go through this massive process of converting cellulose, which is plant matter, into protein and fat. Mm -hmm. And they are... What what Wes Jackson refers to as the best converters of biomass, except for, I would argue, fungi might be better converters mm-hmm. of biomass. Mm-hmm. Well, eat and, through a tree. Yes. And so you have these ruminants, and we're picking bison as a ruminant, but also cattle are going to be ruminants, pronghorn, elk, deer, all of these different animals across the world and and you see them you see them everywhere and you also see a world that has a lot of grasslands that mm-hmm. is going to be this area of life that it really is just for supporting ruminants it doesn't support much else this mm-hmm. when we go to convert grasslands into cropland it just doesn't really work either the soils are too rocky nothing will grow there these grasses grow there, and then you have these ruminants that are really good at tending these grasses. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, what you see is big bands of ruminants are forced together by predation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of bison, we're going to talk about the American wolf is forcing this bison into a tight little herd that is moving across the landmass of the United States. And as they're moving, They're eating these grasses, which is then stimulating the grasses to grow stronger and deeper roots, while at the same time adding their manure and their urine, which is adding nitrogen and microbes and all of this this nutrition back into the soil. And then when the bison are pushed and forced to leave that area, then the grasses begin to grow anew, this time even stronger than they were before. Mm-hmm. And so this relationship between ruminant and grass species is critical for the, for the growth, the maintenance, and the continued aliveness of both. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, we now have a country that is chopped up into these little pieces of land and we don't have a way for ruminants or for larger larger herds of animals to move across the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so what we turn to is this mimicry of nature. How can we mimic nature within the context of a smaller piece of pasture? Mm-hmm. Because when we don't have these ruminants on these pasture, they tend towards desertification. And so de- desertification... The, the pastures do. 
Yeah, the pastures yeah. tend towards less aliveness. They become dust, basically. They become dust, yes. Yeah. They it's become dust. Soil, the grasses it's dust. die. It's yeah. dust. The grasses die. The biodiversity within that system, not just the ruminants, but also all of the small mammalian life and the birds, all of these right. things begin to go away. So it tends it tends towards less aliveness. Yes. And we develop these different lenses, and you can call it a lot of different things, and I don't like to get stuck in that. You can call it regenerative agriculture. You can call it holistic planned grazing. You can call it adaptive It's real political when you dig into grazing. farming yeah. at that and level. I, yes. Yeah, and I, we're not going to do that, and I think it's a little silly anyway. But we're just using what we know about nature to mimic that, and so we're creating small paddocks on a piece of land and moving a herd of animals in that way to help strengthen and improve grasses. And when we strengthen grasses, we also strengthen our ability to sequester carbon. Hmm. And you'll remember that earlier during this, I talked about the prairie, which comprised 40% of the United States being one of the biggest carbon sinks in the world, greater than, than the rainforest. And so grasslands have an incredible function on this earth and they comprise a good deal. I think it's about 30 plus percent of the land mass on earth is grasslands and those grasslands need ruminants and you you see different kinds you even see kangaroos maintenancing grasslands in australia <laughs> and and so this is everywhere which by the way so i'm thinking about like i think there's like a planet earth or some sort of you know like show like that with david attenborough <laughs> and his british accent that's talking about grasslands and, you know, sort of earlier when we were like, we don't have to get into this, but the like the idea that we sort of value some life more than others. Right. So like we can't kill a cow, but we can shred a grassland or we yes. can, you know, destroy a, um, a monocrop and not really care if there are mice or bugs or microbes or whatever, like tilling the soil just like kills all of, you know, like all of those things. What is a life? Is a life a microbe? Is it, you know, right. a little nematode in the soil? Is it a mouse? Is it an insect? And so we move into when we talk about Earl Butts and, and get big or get out. And when we move into this sort of corporate conventional model of agriculture, what we see is monocropping, mostly grains for mostly actually animal consumption. Yeah. Uh, across across wide swaths of land that are going to displace massive amounts of wildlife. You're going to see small mammalian life die in those combines and all of the mechanization of that. You're going to see a massive input of fossil fuels to run all of this machinery on this land, which you're then drilling those fossil fuels. And what is that displacing, right? I mean, we can track this. Mm -hmm. We can track this all these down all these rabbit holes, which is something I actually really like to do. How do we account for... All right. of this when we consider it. Right. It's not just like, um, yeah, I think the conversation about meat and su sustainability is frustrating to me when I watch like, you know, you can eat some beef liver and get all you need, or you can eat 3,000 things in order to get all the nutrients you need as a vegetarian, which come with like shitloads of plastic and also like lots of monocrops and also heavily processed things like the amount of energy consumed in making them the amount of energy consumed in shipping them the amount of energy consumed in like yes. packaging them like so it's such an uh an unnuanced way to talk about meat it is and but i, I think you like, see that in 
you can get protein in broccoli. And I think it takes something like, and I don't know the exact number, but two plus pounds of broccoli to get the same amount of protein that's in two ounces of meat. And so that's, that's over 32 ounces of broccoli to achieve the same ends. And so we have to come back to this idea of nutrient density when we're talking about what it means to, to feed. And I think also we have to come back to this idea of biodiversity, that we Mm -hmm. want these ecosystems that are trending towards life, not towards less life. Well, and two, I mean, even I was going to say your comment earlier where you're like, well, we were just really intense. I'm just an intense person because I just like we we created a farm and then we just went all in because we got all the animals. And I was like, well, but if you didn't get all the animals, only one animal would be there, which means you'd basically be monocropping your animal selection, which means that your farm actually wouldn't have. I'm like, does it have a dog? Does it have a cat? Like those serve purposes on a farm, you know, yes, like they, they have do. like real purpose. An owl has a purpose. A mouse has a purpose. You know, like those all have real purpose. And so, yeah, it's not just that you're like, well, we've got to go all in because I just love like the whole thing and kit and caboodle. Like it's also that like that actually serves a larger purpose to be like, we got chickens, we got goats, we got cows, we got pigs. Like we got all those things because they serve a role on a farm. And there's some symbiosis between all of those creatures within the context of our farm. I want to quickly, and I I can do it rather quickly, track about how meat gets a bad name for our health. Yeah, I also want, in part of that answer, I would love to hear like, okay, yes, ruminants, but doesn't conventional agriculture have ruminants? So what's the difference? Yeah. Awesome. Let's talk about that first. So what I'm talking about are animals that are grazing grass for their entire lifespan. Yeah. Within conventional agriculture, and we're really just talking about ruminants right now, we could get into other animals like pigs and chickens, which are monogastric animals. They have a single stomach similar to what we have, which mm-hmm. makes them omnivorous. They, yeah. in in their wild sense, their wild progenitors would eat meat and all of these different things. And if you've mm-hmm. ever raised chickens, you know that if they get a hold of a mouse, the whole coop is going crazy and fighting <laughs> over it. And so uh, just another misconception. But in the conventional system, what's going to happen is that still most of the cattle in the United States are on grass. Most of them are grazing mothers that are providing steers and heifers that are going to go into the concentrated animal feeding operation, which we are going to call a CAFO. And these animals will spend the majority of their life on grass, and they are they are generally slaughtered much younger than mm-hmm. what you see in what I'm just going to blanket term regenerative agriculture. Sure. Where you see cattle being processed between 24 and 30 months. In this conventional model, you're going to see cattle processed between 14 and 18 months, and they are going to spend the last anywhere from 60 to about 300 days in a small feedlot where they are going to be eating predominantly corn and soy feed, which is a big part of what those monocrops are going into. I think 80% Mm -hmm. of the grain grown in this country goes back into feeding animal livestock. Mm -hmm. And so this changes a lot about them. This changes their nutrient outlay. And some of that work that Fred Provenza and Stephen and Stefan Van Vliet are doing are showing that 100% grass-fed 
regeneratively raised beef has five to 20 times the amount of metabolites and phytochemicals that this other beef does because it's really, really taken it out of its So the beef is more alive. The beef is more alive. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm guessing they're also making the soil more alive. Yes, they yeah. are. And we've talked some about, at the beginning, we talked about that nutrient cycling that right. they're really participating in and necessary for. And we see this especially in brittle landscapes like the West, where when you have dry grass that doesn't have any moisture put on it, it cannot then die and go back into the earth and get cycled through. But if you add urine and manure, that process and hooves that are smashing that down, mm -hmm. that process becomes possible. So this is this is the most important thing in our most vulnerable landscapes. And I think that that's a really mm -hmm. important lens to see that through. And so this kind of agriculture, this regenerative model is going to be very different than conventional agriculture. Now, what I'll say is that in conventional agriculture, you still find a decent amount of nutrient density. You still have something that has a lot of bioavailable vitamins and minerals. And I always like to hold that in this space. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be a whole other series of podcasts to talk about the accessibility of meat or um, food like yeah. this, right? It's just, it's a whole yeah, other thing. So, um, yeah, Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it costs more money. It takes more time. It costs other, you know, like it's, yeah, there's it's a lot so to go much. into, but clearly it's a um, partially privilege. It's all kinds of things that like allow certain folks to eat that. But like, I do think that, I mean, uh, I think it's Diana Rogers. It's a sustainable dish like talks about, you know, like even eating conventional meat actually has a lot more nutrients than a lot of it times does. just eating a prime, like primarily or only vegetarian diet. It does. Um, and I think that's important to note. I do want to add one more little player in here, and that is glyphosate and Roundup, because mm. I think that this is a really important key to our soil. <laughs> yeah. So within that conventional model, and for the most part, whether we're talking about animal agriculture or we're talking about large scale raising of soybeans for soy protein or large scale raising of any monocrops, we're talking about the need to keep weeds suppressed. And we use a water-soluble molecule called glyphosate, uh, which is more colloquially known as Roundup, in order to achieve this end. And Roundup was actually patented as an antibiotic in the 1940s by a Japanese researcher who never saw its use within agriculture because it is an antibiotic and we do have all of these organisms within the soil. And so we are applying this en masse to our land and killing all of these, you know, one billion microbes in a single teaspoon of soil. We are we are destroying this in the name of both animal and plant agriculture. Mm -hmm. And we are then eating these foods. And this is having an antibiotic-like effect on our gut microbiome. It's actually unwinding the tight junctions in our gut mm -hmm. and opening them up and causing this rash of leaky gut that we see mm -hmm. everywhere and is probably contributing to the rise in autoimmunity, the rise in infertility. Can I can I interrupt really quickly? Please. I, I want to see if I can make a connection that I feel like is actually really important to make, which is the need for glyphosate on monocrops is necessary 
correct me if I'm wrong, because it's a monocrop, meaning they are more prone to pest and pathogen because they are isolated. Yes. Like they're just massive patches of a single organism. So yes. pests are like, yes, please, let's get more of that. So then we have to add an external or let's call it, um, what's the word? Exogenous? Exogenous. Yeah. Like it's an outside force in order mm. to keep that alive. I like that. And um, I think this is where we both get a little bit geeky and fall in love uh, with folks like Charles Eisenstein. It's like, let's let's ask the bigger question, which is like, you know, he talks about often that like the conversation around glyphosate is often like, yeah, but we got to keep these things alive. And you're like, hold on. The deeper question is, why are they so prone to pests in the first place? And it's again, it's not even a mirror. It is a direct correlation, really, between like we can even apply that to culture, right? That we are living in an incredibly isolated culture. So we are individually more susceptible to pests and disease and all these things, right? If we're separated from each other, like diversity is not just a a pretty word we place on things because we think it maybe like is better in some sort of like heartfelt, like wishy-washy way. It's like literally diversity is necessary in nature. Like we're talking about with your farm, like you need more than one of those animals on the farm because if you don't, like not only will you not get all of the nutrients you need, but also they will be more susceptible to like a wolf killing them or a fox or something, right? Like diversity is quite literally necessary to our operation. And the only reason that we have to keep ingesting things like supplements, like um, uh, coffee, you know, like that's something that Charles talks about mm -hmm. a lot. Like we have to keep ingesting coffee because we can't internally create enough aliveness in ourselves in order to operate in the world. And instead of like being like, hold on a second, like why are we not talking about the fact that like we even have to spray external sources or ingest external things in order to survive? Like it's not like why supplements again, even like why is it that we're even having to talk about supplementation and what's good or bad? Like what's a good or bad supplement? The fact that we don't have nutrient dense food is the only reason we have to take supplements. Like, yeah. Why do we need supplements in the first place? Right. What is the cause of that deficiency right. within us? Right. I think that these are these are really vital conversations to have because I think that this does speak to one of nature's biggest rules in my mind is that nature loves biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about where life thrives the most, it's actually on edges. Uh, within an ecosystem, you'll have something called an edge zone, and it's where a field meets a forest. And in that in-between, mm. life just explodes because it life loves diversity. Yes, yeah. it loves all the things that are happening in both spaces. And so when we take a monocrop and we empty that area of life because wildlife is going to leave it and all of the soil microbes are gone and all of these different things, then we have isolated it. And what came to mind when you said that was cancer, right? Hmm. Cancer is an inability of a cell to talk to the cells around it in order to make a good choice for itself, right? And that choice, that choice it's is death. Kind of, it's just like, it's, it's not even a metaphor for culture. It just is no. what's happening in culture. Like we can't even talk to each other and we are actually dying because yes. of it. Yeah. Yes. When like things, we have cultural cancer. Yes. When things become isolated and unable to communicate to the organism as a whole, 
it begins to metastasize and proliferate mm-hmm. these broken cells that aren't communicating. Mm-hmm. And I, again, it's not even metaphor at this point. Mm-hmm. And so this is what is happening within that model when we add glyphosate, which I think is really just propping up this sort of false way of growing food. Uh, it's it's artificially suppressing life. And it's also, oh, I mean, it's just extending us into death. But it's I want to go yeah, back. It's like seeing pests even as bad, right? Like, yeah, seeing a pests- weed. Pests and weeds and viruses and all like these all serve an ecological purpose in the world, yes. right? And so it's again this idea that like again like the metaphor of like cultural to our food direct connection that like we are seeing other people as bad, so we have to stay away from them and they we have to keep them out of us at all costs, and that's like directly kill. It's like killing life to make us feel like or seem like we're more alive, but it's actually not full life. Like that's the, it's ripping out that entire thing that I started with, which was that like, that Andreas Weber, you know, like that we are constantly in and out of each other. Like that is eroticism. Like that's literally life. Like you're saying like life happens in the middle of those boundaries. And when we isolate from each other, like in your latest podcast, even that like he was talking about um, Bill was talking about Bill. I'm going to keep getting this one. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I know it's a B. I know it's a B. Um, I'm blaming it on brain fog. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, Like, when you isolate things, they die. Like, this is how it works. And it's what, like, you and I have talked about this before. And we get so passionate about, like, this has become a life purpose for me. Like, this is, it's no longer, it is the metaphor by which I talk about the way that, that we're dying in the world. And so this isn't just, like, part of why I love speaking with you on the podcast and you know outside of the podcast is because it's it's not like i don't know we're not just like geeky about it it's like this is so inherent to the basis of my daily existence that like um i i just so badly want people to hear it this has become my purpose and i really and this has become everything to me. This is what I built my podcast around. This is what I've built my life around. And and this conversation is the conversation I want to keep having, want to keep exploring. Mm-hmm. And it just feels somehow there's a rightness to it for me that, that sort of has a pulse in mm-hmm. me. And I think I want to honor what you said, because I think that as we trend out of diversity, you know, within our groups and as we isolate ourselves, we are missing such a magical point of connection with others. Mm -hmm. And so much is found in that in-between space where we're able to come together and recognize humanity on all these different levels. I never like to put it within a linear binary, but within all these different spaces. And so yeah, it's like uh, the sort of difficulty I have with the name of this body. I'm like, I keep being like, it's why, like it's called this plus that for a reason. It's like at the edge of that boundary. And it feels hard because often it feels like I'm putting things into a dichotomy. But like the important thing between any episode title is always the plus. Like it's like, what is the interconnection between those things, right? I feel like I keep, though, interrupting a story that <laughs> you were still continuing to tell. I just want to quickly talk about how meat gets a bad rap in yeah. the media, because I think that this is really important to sort of understand the genesis of. Because what we're going to see is up until the 1960s, 1970s, we eat meat. 
that that is a really big part of our diet mm-hmm. uh, across all cultures. There is no there is no culture that is uniquely solely vegetarian. Meat, fish, seafood plays a role in all diets that we see from an evolutionary lens. Mm. And something really curious happens in the 1970s and a, and a couple of things happened at once. Sorry, can I stop you there? Is that tr- that's even like Indian food and folks that we think of as like mostly vegetarian cultures now? I believe that is true. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now now is different, right? Sure. I'm saying now is different than historically. Yeah. Okay. All right. Continue on. Okay. I I mean I could be wrong. But and yeah, I just don't want to let that go. I wanted to at least ask. I was like, yeah, we can plumb those depths. Um, We can plumb those depths, but within. I don't think that part is the important part of the conversation. I just want to make sure to ask. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what we see in the 1970s, uh, 60s is that it really begins when Eisenhower has his first heart attack. And what many of us may not be familiar with is that. Up in you know, 100 years ago, heart attacks were very, very rare. Now cardiovascular mm. disease is a leading cause of death. But up until 60s, it really didn't happen. And around that same time, there's a gentleman named Ansel Keys. He's a researcher, conducts something called the Seven Countries Study. But it wasn't actually seven countries. It was more like 22 countries. And he sort of cherry-picked his data to show that saturated fat positively correlated with heart disease. Now... One of the first things that we have to say here is that correlation does not equal causation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there, and especially in nutrition studies, especially in epidemiological studies, it's really hard to actually understand the concert of what people eat. And we are mm-hmm. still struggling to this day to better understand that. And all of a sudden, saturated fat, which is what we find in things like egg yolks and beef tallow and all of these different things, is bad. And we want to remove it from all of our food. Meat is bad. All of a sudden, Americans trend towards fat chicken. Is bad. Fat is yeah. bad. Yeah. Americans trend towards chicken instead of beef. They trend towards taking the fat out of things, towards skim milk, towards What's that yogurt. Like? It was probably the 80s, the like chicken, the other white meat, like heavy yes. campaigns for chicken. Yes. But we also, fat is a really big part of what makes things taste really delicious. And we Mm. talked about earlier in this podcast that our taste is actually usually guiding us towards density. Yeah. So we have to replace the fat with something that provides our taste buds something palatable. And we decide to replace it with sugar by and large. Yeah. I was also going to say just real quickly that like you were talking about the sort of evolution of like primate brains and our brains at some point, like where they start to like our brains start to expand significantly when we start to eat meat. I was also thinking that has to be related to fat as well. No, like the fat inside of meat, I'm guessing, because like fat is so necessary for our brains. I view them as one and the same. Yeah. So when I say meat, I'm talking about the intersection of protein and fat. Yes. And and where they exist together. Got it. And and so we begin to put all of this sugar in things. And I think that this is really important. Move away from saturated fat. We move away from anything resembling an ancestral diet. Mm -hmm. And between the 1970s and now, we see infertility, autoimmune disease, diabetes, obesity, Mm -hmm. all-cause mortality skyrocket. 
Again, that's correlation, not causation. Maybe maybe taking away fat is part of it. Maybe putting sugar in the place of fat is part of this. And this is this is explored in depth in Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Surprise, mm-hmm. Gary Taub's The Case Against Sugar, Kate Shanahan and Deep Nutrition talk some about about where this happens. Mm-hmm. And meat gets a really bad rap. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to enter the climate conversation because yeah, say. because what's happening is that meat off gases, ruminants off gas methane. They burp up methane. Mm-hmm. And this is a really complex conversation, but really the genesis of us pointing the figure and saying it's definitely cows, mm-hmm. which is what has happened, comes from a study out of the UN called Livestock's Long Shadow that misrepresented the number that cattle were contributing to greenhouse gas emissions as 18% when in fact it was below three. They ended up retracting it and changing it, but the media got a hold of that number and it went viral. And all of a sudden, meat begins to get a really bad rap. It's also really important to understand that methane doesn't have the same half-life in the atmosphere that carbon does. Methane goes on a, and I am not the best person to explain this, but a 10 to 15 year cycle where it it then degrades out of the environment. And so it is not something like carbon that has over a 1,000-year half-life within the atmosphere. And and so these are two very different things. Mm -hmm. But we also talked about how cattle have this ability to improve grasses and put carbon back in the soil. And I think that the most interesting evidence for this is there was a study done by Will Harris at White Oak Pastures, which is a biodiverse farm in Georgia, looking at how much carbon he was sequestering using this multi-species rotational grazing operation. Uh And his farm has a negative three, I think it's negative three and a half pounds of carbon per pound of meat that he is drawing out of the atmosphere and into the soil. Around the same time, Beyond Meat did another life cycle analysis, also by Qantas, and they were done independent at different times, showing that they had about a positive three and change pounds per carbon put into the environment in their operation, which is definitely less than conventional agriculture. Beyond Meat, meaning the like alternative meat product. The the fake, yes, yes, the alternative meat product. Yes. And so there's a lot of nuance here, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to raise animals. There are contributions to the environment, to the atmosphere that are coming from these animals in different settings. But there are also contributions that are coming within these plant agriculture. And I think it's important to think about, we kind of talked about the the inputs for plant agriculture that they were requires fossil fuels and it requires all of this stuff. And then we have to manufacture them. And those manufacturing facilities require fossil fuels and inputs and plastic packaging happens on both sides. So we can kind of follow this pretty far out and see that it is really rather complex. Yeah. However, the emissions from ruminants like cattle are not anywhere near representative of what the emissions are like from say, the airline industry, transportation industry. 
And I think it's really important to remember that at this time, the amount of ruminants that are in the United States is similar to or less than the amount of ruminants that were originally grazing the plains. And so here we see that ruminants have this evolutionary role in being a part of our environment and a part of our climate in a really complex way. And I think that they've been maligned and it hasn't been well considered. A little. little. (laughs) And it hasn't been well considered. And I think it's our job to begin to think about, well, let's look at all the pieces that play into how our food moves from farm, and I'm putting this in big quotes, to table. And it's not just the farming, but it's also the manufacturing and the Mm -hmm. processing. If we're talking about cell-based meat. It's talking about the big stainless steel vats and how the steel is mined. I think steel is an alloy of things that are mined, Mm -hmm. right? And and what impact that is having on the environment and the amount of plastics that go into it. And so I think that there there is this bigger bigger accounting of the energy Mm -hmm. that it takes to create any food stuff. Well, it's the same sort of, I think, thinking that, again, sort of is making us culturally sick, which is the like, um, but if it's simple, Kate, it means that if I get rid of it in my world, then I'm safe. And also going back to the mm, beginning, like I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about death. And also I'm not a bad person. Like if I just take this one thing out, it means that I've done everything right. And, you know, it sort of leads to Again, like a conversation I had with Clementine Morgan about like trauma and cancel culture. It's <laughs> like if I just cut certain people out of my life, it means that I'm a good one and I'm also safe from being annihilated socially, basically. And yeah, it's that same sort of like, well, if I can just cut meat out and it's like, but it's not just meat. <laughs> like it's it's what kind of meat? It's like you're saying, how was the meat raised? Where was it raised? What is being used in the process of making the meat? What's being used in the process of shipping the meat? Like, it's such a bigger conversation, but it's fucking exhausting to live like that. I'm sure you and I both know, like, you know, we talked about in our first conversation, like, we are kind of exhausting to people a lot of the time, you know, like, it's just, we are like the complexity and nuance and being complicated, dense sorts of people. Like, if we are nutrient dense people, like, it's a lot, you know, it feels, I think, to a lot of people like it's um, even like within the last couple of days, I've been having conversations with people even who were like, oh, my God, like um, <laughs> I don't want to out a friend. But like she was like, I ate a Crunchwrap Supreme from Taco Bell last night. And we were having this whole conversation about how yummy fast food is, you know, and it was like hyper palatable, hyper palatable, like easy to take. Um And also that like folks who traditionally eat that food find it delicious, but really are turned off by actually like nutrient dense food. It's been engineered to be delicious. And I think that's something that we can't lose track of. Like Like many scientists have gone into making that food both taste delicious and have the right mouthfeel on your palate. And so that's a tough battle. (laughs) That to me also, though, is like the conversation like in my trailer, um, some of the filming we did for that, like a lot of my conversation was like all of the ways in which I've had to cut off pieces of who I am in order to survive in community. And it's like, yeah, I've had to become more palatable to people 
in order to stay in community. And it's like, yeah, I might be easy to swallow, but it's me. Li- it's forcing me to live a half-life. Yeah. That and I just is, don't like feel cool. okay about that any longer. That is really, that is a really powerful statement that you have had to cut off parts of yourself to be more palatable to other people, to stay in community, to stay in connection. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a failing of our culture to continue to accept people as they grow, as they are different, mm-hmm. as they are fully embodying their whole person, what mm-hmm. it means for them to be whole. And gosh, I have, I have had to do that. And I am at the exact same point where I'm not doing that anymore. You either get the whole Kate and you can you can yeah. go. I can tell you two years ago, I would not have published a conversation about meat with a 5,000 foot pole. <laughs> like at some point, I think I say this in another conversation on the podcast that like at some point I realized that coming out as a meat eater felt harder for me than coming out as queer. It was just such a an identity, like a performance of an identity that I just couldn't do any longer but everyone around me was like not eating meat and even now like it's just it's really fucking off-putting to so many people and it's like well yeah okay but let's have a conversation about the whole thing but yeah again just sort of going back to that metaphor it's like it's just being people who require nuance (laughs) means that it's not very palatable to a lot of people. Like not a lot of people are actually willing to be in relationship with folks who are like, I'm not going to allow the easy palatable answer. Like it just, it just doesn't work in my worldview anymore. And it's not to say that like, I have to be always heavier, always intense or always whatever, or that I'm sure you're very familiar with too. Like I like that we can't be funny and light, you know, like, <laughs> I am capable. That, of it. Yes, I am capable of those things. Right. But, um, yeah, that people just don't see ourselves in our full humanity and that like, I don't know, it's just, I don't, um, yeah, it, it's just a, yeah, a thing I would not have done a couple of years ago even. And now I'm just like, it just, you know, I think we talked about this some in our first conversation too, that like, or maybe it was offline, (laughs) off book, um, just that like, I actually feel like similarly, right? It's like that idea of metastasizing. It's like, I am keeping things trapped in my body that are true to me, which means sort of going back to the indigenous way of thinking about alignment and nature. Like that is me out of alignment. It's me out of integrity, which means there is sickness. There is separation. There's separation for myself that's happening because I'm having to deny what I feel, what my body is telling me, like all of those things. And, um, Yeah. Like, I think it's actually like at some point it just became really obvious as I was working on chronic illness that me not saying my truth was actually part of why I was sick. Yes. And I think, you know, like, again, like correlation, causation, no mirror, like it's just all the thing, all the things are all the same is like, we have such massive chronic illness in this country of people who are living half lives. Like, because they have to cut off so much of who they are in their fullness in order to exist. And it's like, that's equally, I think, part of my like felt purpose in the world is being like, no more. Like it just, we can't anymore. Like, like, it's like when you have good, you're like, I can't not give good news to people that like, there is life, there is more aliveness, there is something here, right? Like, so I can't not say that because me not giving my gift to the world is also making me sick. 
and you not getting it is making you sick. You know, again, it's like the monocrops. Like we can't, we just can't keep our truth and our gifts from other people who need to hear it because it is literally not only making us sick, I think it's making other people sick. And at some point, I think my podcast is just going to become a repetition of the same thing over and over again. I mean, that, but, it's like, an exploration. I, I experience the same thing. It's an exploration of the same, the same thoughts yeah. through all of these different lenses. But I yeah. think what you said, Africa Brooks' work is really beautiful in this space in terms of finding a space where we do not self-censor anymore, mm-hmm. that there is so much self-censorship that's happening. But she also talks about this idea that I don't want a monocrop of ideas and opinions. Mm-hmm. I also want a diversity of opinions and ways of being in this world and different approaches and lenses to life that I I, I want to see all of that aliveness mm-hmm. in people. And I don't want to exist in this little isolated sect where everybody thinks the same and eats the same and behaves the same and drives the same car. I want to interact, like, again, a healthy cell in an environment mm-hmm. across all of these different disciplines and ideas and, and purposes in life mm-hmm. so that my life is all the richer for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that I've gotten to experience, you know, kind of on a political ideology level, working in agriculture, that that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people coming from a lot of different spaces. And then you move to a rural environment and you experience that even more. Mm. And it is delicious. It is where life happens. Mm. It is erotic, right? Like it is aliveness. Well, I think, I mean, this is where too, from my own experience, like, you know, if yours has been in regenerative ag, I've spent a lot of my life in doing like social justice and like racial justice specifically. And I think like, this is not a convert. We don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I just think it's worth noting that like, it's not that like being white is bad, right? Again, it's like not that meat is bad. It's like, it's so much more of a full picture of like, we are robbing ourselves from the life that happens. And why often I think you also see folks of color who seem so much more alive like you go into those communities and it's like what have we robbed ourselves of like in having to maintain a certain performance of what it looks like to be like proper and prim and white and act a certain way and do certain things in the world Mm -hmm. and like not allowing anything else into that model because of just absolute fucking fear that like all of these things will get taken from us and it's like well but we aren't fully alive without the whole picture, you know? And yeah, I think the, again, like the metaphor just applies across everything. And it is so much more like too, why I can't not apply it to work because it is also like farming is related to work in terms of like the industrial age, right? Like when the industrialism like of agriculture happens, it's when we also start becoming mechanistic workers which means that like we are also dying because, you know, I've heard so many people in response to my podcast, especially like conversations like the one with David Epstein that are talking about generalists. And it's like, you know, I think before we technically started recording, too, we were both joking again about being highly unemployable people and that like we just sometimes need fucking rest and to like process our emotions. Like we can't just be working all the time and working even just like in one specific role. It's like it's cutting like we're I think we're just starting to see that like how much it cuts off of our own humanity to be like, I show up in the same job every day. I do the same thing. I like, I'm a cog in a machine. 
I keep producing the same thing over and over again. I'm expected to perform the exact same way and I can't be full and real and grieve and hurt and, Mm. um, you know, like even in our first conversation, like we were talking a lot about me processing my own grief. I'm like half of that shit's trapped in there because I've had to spend a life where like grief is not palatable to to human everyday life. I'm like, grief happens when I'm in the grocery store. And I'm like, well, this is a bad place <laughs> to have to process grief, you know? But like, that's, it's real, you know? And again, like, that's the racism conversation that like wailing got taken out of like white culture, you know? Like there are other people who process grief in like collective, massive ways that are like screaming in public over a coffin, you know? They physically embody grief. Yeah. And it goes back to your like, we started this conversation and like, how are we afraid of death? And what does that mean for our soil and for our food and all those things? And it's like, it's all like, we have such a fear. Again, it's like, yeah, that Charles Eisenstein quote, like how much life are we willing to sacrifice at the altar of safety? You know, like it's not actually living to cut yourself off in those ways. Now I'm just on like a fucking preachy rant, but... (laughs) I think I was talking the other day about creating an ownership of death. We've really tucked death away in these little corners. We've hid it behind the walls of hospitals and nursing homes. We've we've veiled it and we've put all these, uh, you know, it's uh, we sterilized it. Mm, death yep. is messy. That's a great word for it. And we have disowned it. We don't mm-hmm. want to take ownership of our participation within a life cycle, right, in terms of eaters. And I talk about this all the time, right? I get to participate. I, I raise all of the food on my farm mm-hmm. and I kill and butcher all of the food on my, all of the animals. that, And I have a relationship with these animals. I love them. I care for them. Mm-hmm. We want everything to fit in this neat little package where we don't have to feel it. Mm-hmm. And whether that's whether that's eating meat or grief, all of these different things. But if we begin to take ownership of death and to allow it in, then I think it allows us to experience the full range of human emotions. Because there's this idea that you can't just numb the pain. You can't just numb the grief because in that act of numbing, you are also numbing the joy. Mm-hmm. And for us to begin to return to the full, whole spectrum of a live human emotion, we have to welcome death back into the conversation and back into our lives and back mm-hmm. into the way that we treat our elders mm-hmm. and the way that we explore death in an environment and in ourselves, right? I mean, I love this idea that you talked about making these violent transitions. Like a part of me has died every time I have made mm-hmm. one of those transitions. I have attended so many funerals but it's for like, parts of yeah, myself. Yeah, like you said, the good death, right? That like a, yeah. a like a there is a kind of death that feels life. lifeless, but there is a another kind of death that is actually strengthening the grass. It's strengthening the soil. It's strengthening your body. But all death is doing that within the context of nature. When Mm -hmm. you come across a space where a fox died in the forest and then all of these animals 
picked at the carcass to take back in their own life. Mm -hmm. And then what is left is left to decay into the soil. And all of this fungi comes up and Mm -hmm. begins to eat that, all of these bacteria. Mm -hmm. And it makes the soil far richer that there's this blood and bones that are going back. And you see this proliferation of life where that animal has died. Death within the context of nature is just the beginning of a thousand other things. It is Mm -hmm. the end of one thing into a thousand other lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And we can't lose that for ourselves too. And those deaths that I incurred in in these violent transitions, it was the beginning of a thousand Mm -hmm. new lifetimes Mm -hmm. for me. And I I will gladly go through those deaths again when it is time for me to transform to change to Mm -hmm. adapt to become this is where i think also like the overlap with religion happens even too right because like in the history of religion like this is how life gets cut out as well and that like i think even the perception of what death means inside of religion or at least let's call it like inside of predominant white western christianity that death is postured as this thing that's like like it's one shot (laughs) i got one chance to get it right then it's i'm dead and like i mean at least in christianity there's like there is an after you know but i think so many folks you know i guess like even outside of christianity that like a view of uh death as like an utter end like nihilistic like it's over nothing else happens and i think Like I have friends who really struggle in that, who have come especially from the sciences and who are like, I'm fucking terrified. Like I'm so scared. And they'll come to me and be like, how are you not just so scared? I'm like, I feel like part of my connection to food and all of these things has taught me, like you're saying that like my death is just the beginning of something else. And I might not know what comes after that. I have no way to control it. That's the entire point. Like, but like my death has to just be the beginning of something else. Right. And again, that's like the Andreas Weber, like making yourself more edible. Like how do I become more nourishing past when I die? You know? And I I think that helps me in like a moral or like spiritual sense, just be like, there's no chance that this is the end, you know, like, and even if it's my conscious end, like that, I know that life serves so much, my life serves so much more purpose beyond when my consciousness closes down. I think there's this context, though, that our cognition is just an emergent property of us interacting with our environment. Right. And so let's go physics on it. We're just like everything is just an event. Yeah and, yeah. and there's so much that we don't understand. And I think I came from a very atheist scientific background. Mm-hmm. And it was only within the context of being connected to nature that I began to see some of the mysticism mm-hmm. in all things and in this process that that death is where one becomes many mm-hmm. and mm, in a world that wants to reduce right like that reductionism of whether we're talking about meat and the environment or we're talking about health from an allopathic western medical model we're talking about looking at an individual part and failing to see its relationship to the whole mm-hmm 
But what we know when we look at nature is that the whole is greater than the sum of all of its parts, that there's something extra that's cooked into the the organism, into the ecosystem, into the environment, into the dark us. matter. Yeah. Yeah, into a carrot, right? I yeah. mean, even into a carrot. There's just something more. And I think that that has brought me closer to any idea of God or religion or anything than anything else. Mm-hmm has been just being in connection to those parts and to see that death is where one becomes the many. Yeah. Well, Kate, what is uh, currently making you feel more alive and lit up in the world? (laughs) Giving you joy since we'd both like to prove to everyone that we have access to joy and not just heavy things. (laughs) I think there is some joy in that complexity, though. And I think as part of Of what you talk about, like shedding all the masks that I have worn over the years, and they are so many masks and just showing up whole in this world, is that I find joy in complexity. I find joy in the nuance. Um, You know, what's lighting me up is filling my freezer with food that I grew myself and killed and butchered, and to be in relationship with my food in that very intimate manner. Mm -hmm. And... Eating tons of organ meats is giving me a lot of joy, I think, on both a physiological and an emotional level. Being in relationship with the community that I have built in this lifetime, with my husband, with people that I've met online, largely, (laughs) is really filling me up. And I think exploring this greater sense of what it means to be in connection that is giving me joy to to find how I connect to all things and to seek out a deeper sense of that connection and to move away from a lot of disconnection and avoidance that I've experienced mm. in my past. Mm-hmm. I would say also it's giving me joy to simplify a little bit. Mm. I think on the chronic health journey that I've been on, There's been so much complicating things. And I I think even in this conversation, I'm sure people can hear that I love to complicate things. And so just seeking a little bit more simplicity. Yeah. I I mean, that's another one of those seemingly sort of disparate things, but I think is actually the same thing, right? It's uh, somehow in deeper connection, you need less and less to satisfy, um, which is sort of like a metaphor for beef liver, you know, or meat too, that it's like you need less of it. And it's like, yeah, again, to reach the, the tiety. Like, yeah, that like, how much distraction do you need of um, empty calories of like the media you consume, the f- being on your phone constantly, the shitty relationships that you, you know, you have the like work that's not that satisfying. Like how much do you have to pump into yourself to finally reach like a point where you feel full and nourished, you know, or you could simplify and actually be in deeper connection and you need so much less, even though it's like a richer, you know, it's like that metaphor of compost again, right? That it's like, it's um, it's just a richer soil to work from. That Like you just, you don't, and again, like it's um, planting and glyphosate, like you need so much less external stuff to be fed into things in order for life to thrive, basically, right? So like there's a simplicity in being in that sort of deeper place, Um that, yeah, you can take away some of that because you're filled up by 
stuff that actually feels nutrient dense. I love That's that. I think you summed it. I think you summed it up perfectly. And it is. You reach satiety faster when things are more nutrient dense. And that's true. It's true when you're eating foods. And I think it's true with everything else. I would say lastly, for the first time in my in a long time, work is really filling me up. This work. Mm-hmm. And getting to connect with people like you and getting to have these conversations has been missing from my life for a very long time. And I denied it to myself because I didn't want to put myself out there in my whole Even be both. Yeah. exhausting form. And so I said for years, I had this podcast and in my heart and oh, no, you know, it's too much. It's it's too much. And it's it's too much for me. It's too much for others. Will anybody understand it? How will I show up? As somebody who's socially anxious to be in connection with people that intimidate me or or with people that I really want to have conversations with. And and it made me sicker not to work in this way, not mm-hmm. to allow myself to experience joy because I was afraid of how people might receive me. And now that I'm here and have been here for the last four months or so, I'm just really excited to work and to be this fuller, I'm not going to call it the fullest expression, this fuller expression of what it means to be me in this season of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're at such a good wrapping place. I'm like, don't, Brandy, go into another rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you we'll do go whatever there when you I'm want. on your podcast. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to be in conversation with you. I can't wait for the conversation to keep continuing in the stupid amounts of messages that we trade back and forth because we don't live in the same place. <laughs> I think this is just the beginning of many, many yeah. conversations. Yes. Um, well, where can the other people find you? The other people can find me. By at... that, I mean not me. <laughs> <laughs> can find my my podcast, The Groundwork Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at groundworkcollective.com. I also built a search engine so that people can better connect with the meat that's right near home, uh, which you can find at nearhome.groundworkcollective.com. It has a really robust set of filters so you can find exactly what you're looking for in terms of certifications and species, because I know that a lot of people like us that are coming at this from the lens of having been vegetarians are picky. Mm-hmm. We're looking for specific things. And all the ruminants on there are 100% grass-fed. All the monogastric animals are pasture-raised. And I, I think it, I'm hoping it can be a good tool to connect people and farmers. And if you're in Denver or in Colorado, you can find me at Western Daughters Butcher Shop, which is the butcher shop that I've owned for the last 10 years. Yes, which is where when I lived in Denver, I sourced a lot of my meat from. But so, now you just go direct to the source. You just go straight to the source. Now I just Buckners. go direct to the source, which I have to say is truly, like, again, it's like a simplification that's just like, it makes me feel more connected. I feel more alive. I have relationship to the people. They give me things wholesale at times, and then I trade them beet kvass, you know? Like, it's a weird in relationship. Like, I have an yes. actual relationship. And you have, a, you're, you have a little ecosystem with the Buckners, yeah. and that is yeah. a precious thing. Uh, that yeah. is where Josh and I learned to, when we were like, we want to move to the farm. I went to yeah. Clinton, Mary Kay. Tell me what you need to, what I need to know. Yeah, totally. And I'm 
yeah, just honored to be following in that path for sure. And uh, similarly, just like finding deeper and deeper connection in my own life in that way. Um, I think yeah. I think I speak for all of your listeners when I say that we are so honored and thrilled to watch you on that path and that you are just giving us so much in sharing that sacred journey towards home, whatever that is. Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's so, yeah, thank you for sharing that. A, as we were talking about in our first conversation, it's so hard, I think, when you experience chronic illness to feel like aliveness is even possible for you, you know, um, like when you especially experience fatigue and brain fog so intensely for so much of your life, it becomes difficult to even imagine what aliveness would feel like. Um, and, you know, like we talked about as well, that like I'm just because I'm working through, I'm pro I am processing so many things right now in some of those violent transitions, even a move, like I said, from Denver to Boulder is a kind of violent transition for me. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, in that I'm tired because there's a lot of work. There is a lot of groundwork that's going on, right? Like, yes. And so um, it's hard because when you're like, but what if I'm not seen for a while? You know, like it's like, what if the work isn't seen? Like, what if I have to take a break? Like, what about all of those things? But um, yeah, I think that's, again, it's like the good work. Like when it's ready, when when it is full, like when you feel when it's satiated, ripe. like, yeah, when it's ripe, when there is aliveness there, like you will give and it will be so much more powerful, so much yes. more nutrient dense, so much more caloric than it would be than if you were just giving when it didn't mean anything to you or when you weren't full and you weren't ready and you hadn't ripened and all of those things. So. When you weren't ready to imbue it with the life that that you give it, because you are breathing life into whatever work you're putting out into the right. world. And so it does require a level of aliveness and of ripeness. Mm -hmm. And I know you know that I've been through this whole health journey and chronic fatigue and yeah. I just, and I want to say this, maybe in closing, whatever it is, is that I believe that we all have the capacity to heal that we see in nature. And I usually say that we see that we see mirrored in nature, but you're right. It, it's not even a mirror. It's not even an, an analog. It's not a metaphor. We just are nature. When we see that resiliency in what it means to reintroduce livestock into a brittle grassland environment and to see them restore that soil and for the grasses and biodiversity to come back, all of this different life to come back into the space, these small mammals and birds, we are that. We have that capability to, to tend towards less aliveness and then to come right back mm -hmm. into the peak of aliveness and ripeness and diversity yeah. and so yeah that's in all of us so apropos of our love of our shared love of charles eisenstein i have this quote that i read a lot of mornings right before i sit down to work which is uh and right livelihood then i suggest that we look at the world with eyes i read this i think in my episode that was like introducing my episode with charles but i think worth noting to sort of close this out i love coming back Great, which is, again, just repeating myself over and over. Um, in right livelihood, then, I suggest that we look at the world with eyes of what opportunity is there to give and how may I best give of my gifts. Hold that intention in mind and unexpected opportunities arise. Quickly, any situation in which you are not giving your life gifts towards something that is good to you becomes intolerable, mm. which is basically what we were saying about, like, we just, it's just, like, so difficult to imagine doing work that doesn't matter and... Um, 
not being connected in this way. And that's like giving of your gifts comes when like a gift isn't obligatory. A gift isn't given when you're too tired to give it. Right. And like, so I think in that way, like when we are most resource, when we are feeling most alive and nutrient dense and all these like words that we can apply to it, that that people need so much less of it. Right. Again, that's sort of like I was talking to in our first conversation about like the sort of inclination to keep producing content, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh like, yeah. yeah. People need Familiar a lot of content that. if it's actually not that meaningful. Mm-hmm. But when you actually produce stuff that just me is just like deeply meaningful to you, you could do one and it would have more impact than doing a hundred in a year, you know? Um, and it's so hard for us to, yeah, I think it's easy for us to hear that and believe it about other people and so difficult to actually implement in our own lives. It is. It is. And I think that's part of how we were taught to be a part of the machine. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see in nature, right, is we see seasons of of quote unquote productivity. And and Mm -hmm. we see the spring and the summer where everything is growing outwardly and there's green on the trees and there's flowers and there's all of this energy being put into making things brighter and bigger and more. Mm hmm. And then we see that condense back down and go inside and we see that energy into root systems and into soil and into stillness and quietness during late fall and winter. And I think it's really important that we not lose track as humans that that we are the same, that we have seasons where we are building something internally. We are building root systems. We are building strength for those moments when we are suddenly going to burst forth with all of this outward that's a alive deep work like it's that's a not lot like, well you're just resting well it's like well re- yeah, resting is a lot of work in case yes. you haven't noticed and it's required that dormancy you know yeah. and by dormancy i don't mean that nothing is going on i just mean that we don't see it from the exterior right. vantage point right that dormancy is actually critical to life life just can't grow in perpetuity it has these Mm -hmm. natural limits and ebbs and flows that actually help it create more aliveness and so we have to hold space for us as humans to find what it means to winter Mm -hmm. yep well kate let's start wintering after (laughs) our long conversation start wintering i can't wait to talk more and just i'm just so glad to have found you Yes, the feeling is mutual. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, I just, I don't know. The more I listen to Kate and her work and get to talk with her and, I don't know, just share in this journey alongside her that I think, as you may have noticed, is just a pretty similar uh, trajectory and um, passions and things that excite us that we've come to in our lives that... um, yeah, I'm just hoping that as we've sort of mentioned that this is just the beginning of a long friendship and one where you will hear Kate and I more than once uh, or even more than twice, I guess, since we're, we're publishing a couple episodes of each other, each on our own podcasts, uh, because, yeah, this is stuff that gets us pumped up. And as you, I'm sure, can tell, it's a deeply meaningful conversation to me. And yeah, I hope to continue and work in various ways alongside Kate 
um, either in direct partnership or just as a symbiotic being who is just rooting for her and her work so much. And I know that she's equally rooting for mine and that we just have such a shared passion for things in life. So I'm sure you could feel that. And I want you to continue getting to listen and also follow along with Kate's work. So please go find her at all the places that she mentioned by checking out the description of this show in whatever player you happen to be listening on or by going to the show notes on my site at thisplusthat.com slash episodes as usual under episode 25 for Kate Kavanaugh. Links to everything that we talked about can also be found there. And my website, thisplusthat.com, is where you can sign up for my newsletter as well, which is where you will get even more behind the scenes stuff, related content, and personal insights from me when I happen to be writing my newsletter. I've really slowed down on both things. Um, I probably should have said this in the introduction because if you didn't make it this far, you wouldn't be hearing this. But yeah, um, I said a little bit about this, I guess, in the introduction, I think, of uh, episode 24, the last episode with Kate. But yeah, I don't know. I've been doing a lot of work and um, around rest, work plus rest, hence the title of our last episode together. And yeah, I've been slowing down a bit. And I don't really know what that slowdown looks like. Um, I can't promise when it will end or if I will or will not be producing much, but I think the production has slowed down a bit. So I'm late on getting these two episodes out in terms of what was typically a bi-weekly schedule for me, producing every other week. And yeah, I'm just, I'm putting things out when it feels good to put out and resting otherwise. And I kind of hope that that's just the way of my future and the way of your future also. So um, enjoy, like I said in the last episode also, just chunking through these conversations and coming to them when you feel hungry to be nourished. And yeah, I hope you continue to come back to them and um, digest them slowly because they are, yeah, nutrient dense. So all that being said, I am just, I'm not writing or producing as much, but I hope you stick around. I'm still here and yeah, doing the hard work of internal healing and yeah, healing of my communities and that sort of thing. So Thank you for being along for that ride. Otherwise, in the meantime, you can also find me very rarely posting on social media at this plus that pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, I one of the other things I think that's um, important for me to share is part of this is I'm trying to find ways to make this work reciprocal more and more for me. It is a gift for me to give and I want it to continue to be a gift for me to give, which is why I'm only doing it in spaces where it feels like I... I don't know. I feel energized to do it and not when I just feel like I'm supposed to. And part of that is really hearing from you and being in a relationship with you. So please comment, like, share it. Um, And even beyond that, if you feel financially resourced to support me, it would mean the world to me. I have been mostly um, or entirely really footing this um, on my own. And this, you know, takes a lot of money and time to produce and It's deeply meaningful for me, so I will continue to do it regardless, but um, it is so beyond helpful to engage with you in this work. So if you feel compelled to share it or rate it on whatever app you're listening on or support me, you can also drop me a tip anytime you feel up to it or even become a monthly supporter by going to my website and clicking support. And as I always say, whether or not you support me financially, you will get equal access to all of my content. Again, I I want this to be a gift to the world and only be something that is, um, 
yeah, it's not gated by a financial barrier, but is something that you feel like you support me back if I'm supporting you in a way. So yeah, those are two ways that I allow you to give to me financially if you're open to doing that and helping me continue to run this. I think it costs like at this point, it's like around $800 a month to do this out of my income. Um, or And it's my only income at the moment. So it would mean a ton to me to have you support this work because I would like to continue it and you doing that helps me do that. So um, yeah, that's the deal. And yeah, part of that money is like helping to have other people help me carry the load of this work. And that's my podcast management team, the podcast babes. So thank you to them for helping me get this out in the world. They're brilliant. You can find links to them if you're also looking for help and support uh, to produce your own podcast at uh, the link in my show notes and the description of this show as well. And yeah, otherwise, um, I know this is a lot to get through, but again, um, I'm a believer in calorically dense things. So I hope that felt nourishing and dense in all the good ways to you. So I'm sending you health and wellness and vitality and aliveness as much as humanly possible and even beyond it. <laughs> so thank you for listening. I can't wait until next time.